0: We've got a huge stage where we meet on Sunday mornings, so it's nice just to be down on your level. We meet in the in Comedy Store in Manchester on Dean's Gate, if you've seen it, and uh, obviously it's just like an old theatre, so it's got this tiny little stage that's set up for the monologue for the comedy gig, and so you squeeze the band on, and then I get up on the stage. I've got about this much space left, so it's nice to have a bit more freedom. It's great to be with you this afternoon. Um, as Keith said, my name is Keith. It isn't that great a name, so let's not no, pretend. pretend. Um, it means wood or, or windy place. So, so that's going to stick with him forever now. You're going to use that against him. So, um, yeah, yeah, you might sit back a bit. But it's really great to be here, and um, it has really been a privilege to watch. You grow. Um, sounds like I'm talking to a small child, but I'm not. I'm talking, talking to a small child of a church, as it were. You've, you, you're still uh, a, f- a kind of fledgling church, a baby church, and it has been. Uh, P- Keith says there's a few, a few people away. And it isn't all about numbers, but the fact that there's a few people away and you're still this size, uh, healthy churches grow, healthy church plants grow, and you grow it. And you've only been here five minutes. So it seems to me, anyway, you've been here what, 18 months, two years? More more than that, about that, yeah. which is phenomenal. Um, so be encouraged. It's great to be here, and I hope that I can serve you this afternoon. Just one little boring bit of more detail about about where I've come from. Um, that is to say, I'm so grateful to Chester because when I come here, it's like I'm slightly coming home. Um, we we have some sort of um, things to celebrate about Chester in terms of my dad's from Chester and actually uh, scattered about in various places like the military museum. We found uh, a relative or a, a kind of um, a great-great-uncle a great, great who served in World War I or two. I think it was World War I, and um, I was killed, but he's kind of commemorated, and he's got a picture up in, in the military museum here in Chester. We also discovered the other day, Rachel discovered and, and texted us, sort of relatives that are in the cathedral windows, I mean, not literally, but there's kind of, um, they're mentioned in the windows of the, of the cathedral, which is phenomenal. But more exciting than that, and more grateful am I than that, is that my dad became a Christian in a church youth group. I think it was a Methodist church in, in Chester about 100 years ago. I'm kidding. Um, and I was just texting him in worship. I wasn't being irreverent. I was trying to text him in worship to find out what the name of the church was, but I think he's somewhere where he hasn't got a signal, because so I've forgotten the name of it. But I'm so grateful to Chester because I'm also grateful to where my mum's come from in Scotland because there's a great Christian heritage there. But where my dad got saved was Chester and then brought us up. And, you know, things are, I won't say a circle of life because that's Lion King and that's New agey But it's amazing to be here and a real privilege. And it has been great to be alongside Keith and Rachel as they've been. Uh, planting here, and like, and like Keith said, I, I, we, moved to Maccles, we moved from Macclesfield. I've been there for about 11 years, planting a church there. So I know what it is to plant a church. I know what it is that you're going through. The, the kind of have we got enough people to even put on this particular part of church life? Is this going to happen? Are we going to do this or that? I know the tensions, I know the difficulties, I know the practical challenges. And then about uh, a year and a half ago, we moved to Manchester to begin leading um, the team there which is a much more established church, but again has its own challenges. It feels like there's a hundred million things going on all at the same time. So uh, it's simpler in many ways. You might disagree with me, but it's simpler in many ways to church plant than it is to walk into an existing church where there's a gazillion things going on. This afternoon we're going to be looking at marriage and singleness. I could bring a... uh, you know, a, a teaching and an encouragement to you in, your, in terms of church planting but I think this is a, a massive area to get right early on in church life and a massive area that we can get wrong and I think churches over the last 20 years have got wrong one other encouragement I just want to give to you before we do get into the whole area of marriage and singleness I just want to say fantastic worship time, I loved it Present, meeting with God, with you has been brilliant and I love the fact that you're still going for the gifts of the spirit and we are in a, a a style of church, call it new church, call it what you like, where there is a tendency, and there always has been, but there still is a tendency, to go either one way or the other in terms of word or Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you to keep having both. And it's one thing that we are really valuing in Manchester, is that we have a little bit of what we might think sometimes is a bit unpredictable and a bit wacky in our worship, but we would rather keep that. And try and explain everything and try and be helpful to those that are guests and who don't know Jesus yet and who think we're mad. We want to try and explain to them what's happening, but at the same time not kicking out the Holy Spirit because we don't want to offend anyone. And at the same time we want to value the Bible and keep preaching and teaching it. So just well done and I want to commend you and and thank you for a great time with you. Marriage and singleness. And singleness will become our focus as you'll see. And it might seem strange to put them together in the same sermon and to tackle both themes at once. But it wasn't strange for the Apostle Paul to do that, as we'll see. In fact, we need to understand the the importance of both. And the best way to look at them is alongside each other. Again, as the New Testament does on a couple of occasions at least. It's worth noting that the New Testament's main personalities Thanks Phil, that feels better to me. It's worth noting that the New Testament's main personalities are equally divided in terms of who was married and who wasn't. So we know that Peter was married. We know that Paul wasn't married. Jesus wasn't married unless you believe the gospel according to Dan Brown, if you remember that book. John the Baptist seemed to be single. Mary, seems to, Mary the mother of Jesus, seems to stay in a place of singleness after presumably Joseph has died. Even if I'm wrong about Mary and John the Baptist, we can be definite in saying that the author of our salvation and the author of much of the New Testament were both single, Paul and Jesus. And as we'll see, churches can be guilty of overemphasizing marriage so that you have to have been married for 10 years before you're given any kind of responsibility in church life. And following that kind of thinking that we can get into sometimes, Jesus and Paul would not have been elders in a lot of our churches. Sad to say. So I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to provoke some of you this, this afternoon. I'm hoping that I'm going to encourage some of you this afternoon. Please don't slap me. If I say something provocative, please just go and give it some prayer and, and then you can ditch it if it's no good. But I know this is kind of a difficult area. And I know this can be a a tense area. So please do hear what I am saying in it all and not what I'm not saying. And if you don't like what I even am saying, then um, give it some prayer and thought. And go back to the Bible yourselves because we all need to do that. But the three areas that we're going to look at, the three questions that we're going to, well, two are questions and one is a statement. Number one, which is better, marriage or singleness? Number two, which is the highest calling? And number three, serve and die. I thought I'd just kind of finish with that. (laughs) So what, may you ask, will we be looking at? Where are we going to go? Which passage in the Bible are we going to go? Because there are a number we could choose from. For example, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, uh, talks about marriage. Ephesians 5 is the famous passage on on, uh, marriage and the word submission. You know now the same. Submission. You know I say submission. Um, Of course you are. Submission. Ephesians five. In Mark chapter ten and Matthew nineteen, Jesus quotes Genesis two twenty four, and talks about marriage and he talks about God's heart for marriage. And what's really interesting, especially in the Matthew nineteen version, which is slightly longer than the Mark ten version, as ever. Mark ten tends to. Mark tends to sort of choose his words carefully and it's, it's, it's shorter. Well, What's interesting in the Matthew 19 version is the disciples' reaction to what Jesus says about marriage and divorce in particular. Jesus says, guys, you cannot any longer divorce your wife because she burnt the dinner. That's the kind of culture that he says it into. You can't do that anymore. And what's amazing is the disciples' reaction is, well, that's it. Marriage is too difficult. I'm not doing that. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus doesn't say... Come on, butt your ideas up. It isn't that hard. He, doesn't, he just leaves it. It's almost as if he says, "Yeah, it is tough. It is. It is a challenge. It is a difficult path to go down." Doesn't mean it's impossible. Doesn't mean it's not godly. I'm not gonna, we're not going to ditch marriage this afternoon. But what we get is a bit of sometimes a bit of a reality reality check that I think we're sometimes nervous of. In Matthew 22, one verse that my wife wishes wasn't in the Bible is that there is no marriage in eternity. No marriage and resurrection. She thinks it's very unromantic and and tough to swallow. She thinks we should be married forever, which is lovely. But apparently there won't be marriage at the resurrection. And then there's 1 Corinthians 7, which is where we are going to spend our time this afternoon, where Paul addresses, as I've said already, marriage and singleness in the people in Corinth. And so let's go there. One Corinthians seven, chapter uh, chapter seven, verse one. We're going to just read the first eleven verses. We're going to skip some, and then we're going to carry on from verse twenty-five. But verse one of chapter seven of One Corinthians, and the words will appear on the screen, hopefully. Now, for the matters, I might have the wrong version. Sorry, I might have the right version. I might have the new version of the NIV. So it's slightly different from there. I am sorry, but uh, this I think this is a bit better trying to be a bit more PC anyway. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Proof that Paul wasn't married if he ever needed it. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband must not divorce his wife. Then... From verse 12 onwards, Paul talks about remaining in the place of life that we were in when we first became Christians. And then, let's read from verse 25. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. It's nice. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Then Paul talks about those who are engaged, as it were, or betrothed in that society. And it is specific to that culture. And then in verse 38, we get another kind of big giveaway for Paul in terms of the question, which is better, marriage or singleness? We get a big giveaway in uh, verses 38 and 39. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Read verse 40 as well. So which is better? Depends who you ask. Depends who you ask. The traditional view in our society... And the traditional view in New Testament society generally would be that marriage is better. Marriage wins. If you ask Paul, if you ask Jesus, you get a bit of a different story than we might like. The main thing I want us to see here in 1 Corinthians 7 is that Paul is arguing, really, if push came to shove, and probably more so, singleness is preferable. <gasps> Tim Keller says this, Christianity was the very first religion or worldview that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. Jesus himself and Paul were single. One clear difference between Christianity and Judaism and all other traditional religions is the former's entertainment of the idea of singleness as the paradigm way of life for its followers. In other words, singleness was no longer to be poo-pooed and put down, it was held up. Keller goes on to say, Nearly all religions and cultures made an absolute value of the family and of the bearing of children. There was no honour without family honour. And there was no real lasting significance or legacy without leaving an heir. Right? We understand that, don't we? Even nowadays. The early church, interestingly, also went against the culture of their day. For example, Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, emperor, even had widows fined if they failed to remarry within two years of the loss of their husband. They got fined. They were fined. In contrast, among Christians, widowhood was highly respected and remarriage was, if anything, mildly discouraged. And we see that here in 1 Corinthians 7. Far from putting pressure on widows to remarry, the early church actually economically supported them and helped them stay single. So in Paul's mind, with the time being short as he saw it, and it still is short because we don't know, do we, when Jesus is coming back. In Paul's mind, with the time being short and a constant expectation on the return of Jesus, which I think we probably don't live with in quite the same way as they did, if you cannot get married, then don't, was Paul's line in the Bible? Yeah, you just read it. We don't like it. We don't focus on it. And in these last two verses he says to virgin men and virgin women and to female widows in particular because perhaps the challenge economically would have been greater for them than male widowers who would have been able to go and get work. He says don't get married if you don't have to. Now, the, now we know that Scripture values marriage. We know that. We see that right there in creation. Jesus valued marriage. But what we have here is a very clear balance, and in fact, probably an emphasis on staying single if you possibly can. What this is not saying, and this, is how, this is what we need to be clear about. What this is not saying is it's wrong to get married. It's not, ro- it's not wrong to want to get married. What this is not saying is it's wrong to even pursue a spouse. Don't go getting a court order, but it's right. It's okay to pursue someone. You know, you don't want to get an ASBO. <laughs> Hassling and stalking people. Don't do that. But what it also does definitely not say is that marriage is the pinnacle of all existence and poor old you, single person, if you miss out. That's what it doesn't say either. That's beautiful and important and sometimes very counter to the culture that we have the kind of subculture that we have in many churches which says marriage is the pinnacle and unless you're married you're not really a proper person It's terrible it's shocking but we do do it Paul says no actually staying single would be better your, your attention to the Lord's work would be less divided does that mean that all married people should seek a divorce as soon as possible no Obviously not it 's better if you 're single, but go for it if you want to get married is what paul 's saying so this isn 't like oh no i 'm going to have to i 've got the gift of celibacy it 's not that either i 'm never going to get married because it 's better to stay it 's not that either, but if you do stay single, if you feel God calls you to that to, to that, or if you 've just found that that 's the way it 's gone, actually. We need to value you as one who is valued in scripture. Who has undivided attention in a way that married people don't. So that's the first question. Which is better? And it's probably singleness. Which is the highest calling? It's a slightly different question. Which is the highest calling? If singleness is preferable, then does that make it a kind of more honourable existence or a higher calling? Well, a truly higher view of singleness means a truly higher view of marriage and vice versa. How does it mean that? Well, in Ephesians 5, we read the highest, loftiest perspective on marriage that there is in Scripture. That it is a reflection, if you read Ephesians 5, you'll see it. It's a reflection of Jesus and the church. Jesus is the husband, the church is the bride. It's an incredible description of both the church and Jesus' relationship and an incredible description of husband and wife's relationship as they reflect Jesus in the church. It's incredible. It also speaks plainly, as I referred to earlier, about how wives are to love and respect their husbands and how husbands are to love and serve their wives. Neither gets away with an easy life. Marriage is therefore no longer ultimately about sexual fulfilment or social st- stability, or personal fulfilment, or looking good, or being accepted by family or society or your local church. Ultimately, marriage was created to reflect on a human level our relationship with the Lord and for us to serve each other. Married love is sacred, blessed, and to follow the pattern of Jesus' sacrificial love for us, the church, his bride. That's what we see in Ephesians 5. But you see, and this is where we start to get a high view of marriage, Bringing in a high view of singleness, marriage is only penultimate. Jesus said, as I referred to earlier, that marriage won't exist in heaven. That verse that my wife doesn't like. Then she'd hate me to keep talking about. Matthew 20, she'd hate for me to keep embarrassing her, that's what I mean. She appreciates it's the Bible. Jesus said it won't exist in heaven. Marriage on earth is penultimate. It points to real marriage that our souls need and the real family that our hearts desire. In God's family, with him as our husband, not in some weird way, so relax if that freaks you out. But with him as our husband and our friend and our encourager and our Lord and our master and our brother and our father. No marriage will ever completely give us what we need ultimately. You need a fulfilling love friendship and relationship with Jesus Christ right now otherwise you'll do a terrible job of conducting your marriage even if you're married to a Christian if you put all your eggs in the basket of your spouse as it were if you say this is my ultimate person in the universe this is who I lean on they are my life they, they become an idol and you'll do a terrible job of your marriage if you make them that important Marriage is only penultimate. It only reflects what one day will be our, our true family, with God, as the, with God in his correct place. And it's in this way that singleness is then elevated along with marriage. Marriage is elevated but only as a picture of something eternal. Both marriage and singleness serve a greater purpose and a greater calling upon our lives. To do what? To love and serve the Lord Jesus. If you don't have that deep friendship with Jesus and reliance upon him, then you will put too much pressure on your marriage to fulfill you and that will lead to a diseased life. As singles, if you, have, if you don't have that same fulfilling ongoing friendship with Jesus and draw on his resources daily and hourly, then you will put that pressure on your, on your dream of marriage and that will create disease in your lifestyle. So you can be single and put too much hope in marriage. You can be married and put too much hope in marriage. Disease in singleness may include devastating loneliness because you have so elevated the one day you will be married. Disease in marriage, because you've over-elevated it, will mean warped relating, an ugly over-dependence upon that person, or ideals that are never reached. They're They're never quite good enough. He never quite lives up to what I thought he was like before we got married. He never quite lives up to what I expected for a husband. She's never quite been what I expected of her. In both cases, whether single or married, idolatry of marriage is the danger and can lead to diseases in our relating Tim Keller again. We are neither over elated by getting married nor over disappointed by not being so, because Christ is the only spouse that can truly fulfil us, and God's family the only family that will truly embrace and sat- satisfy us. It makes sense. The best piece of advice we got from a football coach. My son is 13 now, but when he was about nine or 10, Crew Alexandra, uh, he was put forward to Crew to go and. Um, Do some trials with them. He was a goalkeeper. He was over the moon. I mean, I was pretty happy about it myself. But one of the best pieces of advice we got from this coach that put him forward, or one of the coaches at Crew, was if he makes it and gets accepted by Crew, don't get too excited. And if he doesn't, don't get too deflated. Don't get don't get your hopes up about about what might happen. Very small picture, but it's similar. We mustn't over-elevate marriage. We can do that either when we're single or, or married. So which is the highest calling? Neither. Because in the light of our common high, high, high calling, who cares which is the highest? We're all called to this high calling. Our high calling has already been nailed. Already been made possible by nails. Jesus says in Matthew 2, 22, verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's your highest calling. That's your highest calling if you're married or single. What does that mean practically? It means we, the church, have got to start acting like a gospel-based community and not a tradition-based community. The tradition-based community will fre- reflect the idolatry of marriage that we often see in culture. Now the postmodern Or the post-post-postmodern, wherever it is we're up to, the postmodern community, reflecting the society that we live in, will uphold individual freedom as an idol, and we don't want to do that either. Being gospel-based in our approach to marriage will affect the way that we communicate and think. It will affect the way that you communicate as a church to each other. I mean that we don't put singles at the back of the queue anymore. That's tradition-based. See, we live in a society where marriage isn't quite upheld in the way it was 30 years ago, but weddings are, right? Footballers' weddings, they're the rave. They're all talked about. They spend millions on them. Marriage isn't that big a deal, but weddings are. So there's still a a pressure, there's still a tradition-based thing going on there. We must be careful that we still aren't sucked into that. Even if it is slightly different. It means we speak in church life. It means we speak realistically and not sentimentally about marriage. Well-meaning, nice Christian people cannot fathom why Paul would speak so realistically about marriage and so highly of singleness in this chapter we've just read. Paul, why are you putting marriage down? It's wonderful. Undiv- divided attention. Come on. If I was single, I, I could stay around after the meeting t- today for, for ages and chat with all of you. I've got a wife and two children who I'd like to see before they go to bed. That means I need to shoot off. That's not wrong. My attention is slightly divided, that's all. It's just real. Paul's real. Sometimes we think, oh, it's been a bit negative, isn't he? Can't cope with 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a bit It's a bit down. He's very real about marriage pressures. And the gospel-based community treats singles like equal members and potential leaders in the church rather than kind of second-rate citizens. That's the gospel-based community. Tradition-based community still sticks to you must be married for 15 years before you can lead a small group. Unfortunately, many churches, or maybe most churches, still do imbibe this traditional society view of marriage. And not a gospel based view of marriage. In Philippians 2, Paul couches his whole life and possibly his imminent death in the context of the gospel. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about everything coming under the lordship of Jesus and his gospel message, including what we believe about marriage and singleness. It's not just that we get all excited about the deathbed scene. That Paul's nearly dying, and that's when the gospel really comes into its own. Thank you, mate. It isn't about just those kind of glory Hollywood moments, it's about everything, including whether you're single or married or not. Paul even talks about eating and drinking to the glory of God. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon about marriage, about physical intimacy in marriage, which you can get online if you want. It's had quite a lot of hits since. Um, I was going to give it its actual name, but there's little ears around. We talked about sex in church. And to do that to the glory of God in marriage, in the context of marriage. It is for everything. The gospel is for every part of life. Even things like romance. Even things like every day, what do you spend your money on? your friendships, your work, your family. It's for everything. And I've heard it said that churches continue to make Christian single adults feel like freaks or objects of well-meant but patronising pity. Oh, you're single. Well, let's try and sort you out. Shut up, please. I've been single for 15 years. I'm quite happy. in other words we're just not taking 1 Corinthians 7 seriously enough we didn't even know it was there oops none of this means again that it's wrong to be married none of this means it's wrong to enjoy marriage or none of this means it's wrong to be single and want to be married That it's it's not wrong to want to be married and find that difficult and I know that that's going to be the case for some but here's the thing what is marriage for what's marriage for Not for us. It's not for me. What is being single for? Not for me. Not for us. Again, drawing on Ephesians 5, marriage is about the other person. Marriage is about helping our spouse become all that God wants them to be through our sacrificial service to them. We are to be in love with the glorious thing God is doing in our spouse's life, which is not the same as not loving them until they change and love me more first. I'll love them when they've sorted this out. Thank you. I'll serve them when they start serving me. That isn't it. We're committed to our spouse's future glory over and above our own comfort. And ironically, that leads to the amazing fulfillment, to an amazing fulfillment, but not in a superficial or sacrificeless way that contemporary society has brought into the Hollywood marriage. Where everything's wonderful. No. You get there, but it get you go there through the Jesus route. Drawing this to a close, John Piper says this: take heed. I don't know why he goes into old medieval language, but he does. Take heed here lest you He's still alive. It's not like he's dead. Take heed here. Lest you minimise what I am saying and do not hear how radical it really is. I am not sentimentalising singleness to make the unmarried feel good. And that's what I hope I'm not doing either this afternoon. I am declaring the temporary and secondary nature of marriage and family over against the eternal and primary nature of the church. Wow! Marriage and family are temporary for this age, the church is forever. I am declaring the radical biblical truth that being in a human family is no sign of eternal blessing. But being in God's family means being eternally blessed. Relationships based on family are temporary. Relationships based on union with Christ are eternal. Marriage is a temporary institution, but what it stands for lasts forever. So lastly, serve and die. I love the film Braveheart. This is the kind of point I think William Wallace would make. Servant. I'm not going to do the accent, even though I'm half Scottish. It never works. Lastly, this, this hasn't been a kind of practical how-to. It's been a, a kind of more print, underlying principle look at what this is about. But it will affect every day of the week, and it will affect our approach to life, whatever our circumstances. For example, one of the things that came out of this sermon that I did two weeks ago is if you are really in your marriage for the other person, you can't stand on your rights as to what you look like even. And it's quite a controversial thing. And it's in the context of a long sermon about, about sex in marriage. And, but if you're married and, you ha- and you're a man and you have one eyebrow, perhaps your, life, your wife would like you to have two and to shave the bit in between so that you look a little bit more presentable. Perhaps she'd quite like you to have a shower once a week. I know it's unrealistic, but it, it's an aim, it's a goal. You know, Aim for the sky, you might hit the ceiling. It affects, I haven't gone for those kind of practical things, but that's where it affects things. When the rubber hits the road. For both marriage and singleness, remarriage, post marriage, even for those refusing to go through a ceremony in our society but wanting to commit to a person for life, which does make up a huge amount of our growing, uh, growing percentage of our society, no one can escape these words of Jesus in John 12, verse 24, 26. He said this Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds that's him talking about his own death for the good of humanity and now he says to you and me and to the whole of human race and he says to people everywhere universally he says this the person who loves their life will lose it while the person who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life whoever serves me must follow me And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian or not. It doesn't matter if you are married, single, divorced, living with someone as though you are married. This verse has to be faced up to. This challenge of Jesus hits religious people and non-religious people in the face equally hard. Religious people think that their religion and their morals justify them loving life more than God. Catch that? Irreligious or non-religious or a-religious or atheistic people think that their moral behaviour or their indifference before God or their complete denial of God's existence justifies them loving life more than God. Because he doesn't exist. Jesus says in the context of talking about his own death, I'm going to die for the good of many. Whoever you are, you do not escape the implications of this. If you love your life, you'll lose it. If you love it more than him, you'll lose it. Married people, if you love being married more than you love God and serving him, you're in trouble. Single people, if you love being single and the flexibility it gives you more than loving God and serving him, you're in trouble. If you love the idea of being married more than him, then you are in trouble. I don't care if you're an atheist or you've been a Christian for decades, that's the bar. Serve Jesus or die. Are you going to serve me in this self-sacrificing way is what Jesus would say. That's the bar. So in conclusion, we're left with a choice. We can walk away or serve him, like the rich young ruler who walked away with his cash in his pocket still. A bit sad, but at least he still had his cash. Or we can stay, give the money away, and serve Jesus, whatever that giving the money away is. If you've got to give up something that you're holding on to, if you're holding on to an idea, or you're holding on to an idol, or you're holding on to something, instead of staying and serving Jesus. And we will need help with this. For some of you that maybe wouldn't call yourself a Christian in your own words, there's a challenge for you this morning to maybe just acknowledge God and acknowledge that you need him. Maybe that you don't quite know where to begin. Just ask him to reveal himself to you. If you're married or single this morning, let's determine to, to serve in a kind of kernel of wheat, dying kind of way. That's what I mean by the serving and dying. For each other, for Jesus, for Him. Only with His grace and with His help. This isn't about, this isn't self help. This isn't the gospel according to ticks and boxes. This is, God has done it all and made it possible for us to live for Him. It's His grace. We did nothing. We brought nothing to the table except a a big plate of poo. It's all we brought, a big plate of sin. It's all we brought to the feast. And He said, I'll deal with that. Take that plate away. Here's a fresh plate of wonderful food for you to feast on. You're my son, you're my daughter. Welcome home. That's what he did when he died on the cross for us. It's based on that. But from that, we're to serve and live for him. Serve and die. Which is better? Singleness. Which is the higher calling? Neither. Serving him is the highest calling.